It's nice to see you this morning. Today I want to talk about, in our series on mercy, showing mercy to your family. Sometimes the hardest place to show mercy is in the home. Like, we'll, be, we'll meet a stranger and we'll overlook their weakness and we, you know, we'll just kind of let it go. But with family members, sometimes we're, we're harsh on them. And we, we don't show that love sometimes to our kids, to our spouse, whoever it is, an uncle, an aunt, can be your parents. But we do have the ability to control our anger because we've been in situations like you're in an argument with your spouse and you just can't help but raise your voice and the phone rings and you're really mad at them and you pick up the phone, hello? Which means you can control it because if you really couldn't control it, you wouldn't be able to pick up the phone in a civil way. So we have the ability to control our anger, but in the moment with our family, we don't. And sometimes we say the angriest things and the meanest things to the people that we love the most. Sometimes we say something very rude to one of our family members that we would never say to somebody that we didn't know. We would show them grace, but then when it comes to our own family, we don't show them grace. We're hard on them. And we're harder on ourselves, too. We tend to be harder on me, my spouse, my kids, than I would be on other people. These are the type of things that end up hurting a family and sometimes destroying a family. In Psalms 101, verse 2, it says, Lord, I want to live a blameless life, but how I need your help, Lord. Have you felt like that? Especially in my own home. Have you ever felt like that? How I need your help, especially in my own home, where I long to act as I should. Sometimes it's like, Lord, I need help, especially at home. That's where I just mess up the most. The word mercy goes hand in hand with the word love. You can't separate love from mercy. And we're going to look at a passage today that talks a lot about love, but it goes hand in hand with what we're saying. Now, you might think, I'm a loving person, but when it comes to that family member, and like I'm saying, it's not just a spouse or, or children. It could be that brother or sister. I found like in every family, there tends to be somebody that's difficult. <laughs> Have you noticed that? If you're sitting there and you're thinking, there's nobody difficult in my family, then it's probably you. <laughs> but there's difficult people in every family, at every workplace, wherever you go, there's always going to be somebody that tends to be difficult. So I might think, I'm a loving person, but when that family member who always tells stories and always gets the stories wrong, do you just show them grace or do you publicly have to say, that's not how it goes? And, and always like correcting them in public in front of everybody. See, sometimes we think we're loving. But we're kind of rude sometimes to the people that we're closest to. If it was somebody else telling the story, we might keep our mouth shut. But it's because it's my uncle and he always gets it wrong. Or my sister or my mom or whoever it is. Or we think that we're loving. But when someone makes the same mistake over and over again, are we harsh on them? Or do we just let it go? I had a roommate. And every time we went to the grocery store... It would be like this almost every time. Like if we need a corn, he'd say, oh, I'll get it. I'll pick it up. And he'd bring cream corn, but it was exactly what we didn't need for what we were going to make. Or 
Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll stop by and get orange juice. And he would grab something. It would be orange drink, which is sugar water. But in his mind, he just saw it was orange. So he grabbed it. You know, right color. It must be correct. And because it was a constant thing, it used to irritate me. And I used to have arguments with this roommate of mine over things like that. But what happens is I wasn't demonstrating what mercy is. That's his weakness, just like I have my own weaknesses. What he needs is grace. He needs to be talked about it, but he needs grace. Nobody needs to be belittled in their home, but we have a tendency to do that uh, to people, you know, the, the ones closest to us because it irritates us more when it's them. Or maybe you see somebody getting more attention than what they deserved, or someone in the family that got a lot of credit for something. And you know that they got more credit than what they deserve. So you try to say something to bring them down. Instead of just saying, okay, someone's giving them credit. It doesn't matter who gets the credit. If it makes them feel good. But no, 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 no. I'm not going to let my sister get the credit for that. I'm going to bring her down so it comes to me. I'm the one that deserves the credit. And sometimes we treat family members like that. Instead of just like being happy... That be happy that they got in the limelight a little bit. doesn't matter if it's exactly right. But we don't have a merciful heart. We don't have a lot of grace sometimes when it comes to family. And we're harder on them than it would be with somebody else. Or they say something, and we always assume the worst motivation. We take it in the worst way. I've seen this with spouses, that they can't talk to each other because one of the two, no matter what you say... They'll find a way to take it in the worst possible way, and it breaks down communication. And usually it's two good-hearted people, but one person has this tendency to take things in the worst direction, and then it, it destroys the relationship. It destroys the marriage. It breaks down the communication where one person's always walking on eggshells around the other one because they don't know how to say it. They can't say it without it turning into a fight when they're just trying to have what they think is healthy communication. Am I more polite with strangers or am I more polite with my family? So I would guess showing mercy in the home with those closest to us, I think it's a problem that we all have to deal with. I don't think anybody has this down perfectly. I think we, we have weaknesses in this area. And mercy is love in action. I want to see that love in action at my home with my wife, with my kids, with my parents, with you know, my aunt. My uncle, those type of things. Remember, mercy is not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's a behavior. It's a choice. It's a decision. I can feel that I'm a merciful person, but if I don't show mercy, I'm not being merciful. It's all about doing it, putting it into action. Real love is the same thing when you read about love in the Bible. Love is an action. It's not a feeling. See, we think about love more like the word lust. What am I getting? What am I getting? But in the Bible, that's not how love is seen. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love is not boastful or proud. Love is not rude. Notice how all these are attitudes and stuff. It's not, it's not like a feeling. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not irritable or easily anchored. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. Love rejoices with the truth. Love is always supportive. 
Love always trusts. Love is always hopeful. Love always perseveres and never gives up. Love never fails. It never ends. Think about in your home with your family. And then let's read it again and put the word I. I am patient. You might say right there, okay, I've already blown it. I'm not patient with my family. I'm patient at work, but not at home. I am patient. I am kind. I do not envy. I am not boastful or proud. At home, I'm not rude. When I'm at home, I'm not self-seeking. When I'm with my family, I'm not irritable. I'm not easily angered. When it comes to my spouse, I don't keep a record of wrongs. When I'm with my family members, I don't delight in evil, but I rejoice with the truth. I'm supportive. I can be trusted. I keep hope. That means like you never give up. That's like a faith aspect. I persevere. I keep going. I never give up. My love for my family never fails. When I put the word I in there, I can start feeling like, okay, I thought I was a loving person, but not now. You know, easily angered. Sometimes I get easily angered at family members when I win it at somebody else. You look at a lot of love songs, and they're really lust songs. It's about getting, not about giving. Love can always wait, but lust can't. Because thus, it's all about you. You know, you make me feel brand new. That's self-centeredness. Because love is about what you're doing for the other person. Uh, love's focused always on how can I bless their life. It's not about me being blessed. That's how Jesus is with us. You know, he's reaching out to us. He's loving on us. This is why I say in a marriage... A lot of times you have a tick-on-dog relationship. The dog's there, and the tick is there just for himself, just for himself, just for himself. It's get, get, get. And after a while, I don't know of a dog that likes a tick. But that's sometimes how we try to treat a spouse. I'm the tick, and I'm there to get, to get, to get. Like, they're going to meet my needs, and they can't meet your needs. Only God can. So it becomes like a tick-on-dog relationship, except for most relationships I've seen there's two ticks and no dog <laughs> going at it, you know. And uh, that's not health. That's not love. Love is what can I do to bless your life? What can I do to show you love? You know, what can I do to meet your needs? It's not about me, me, me. It's about you. It's about being other-centered. And can you imagine if two people in a marriage were doing that? Two people were focused on how can I meet your needs? How can I bless you? If you have two people in a marriage going like that, that's going to be a super marriage. But even if you have one person doing that in the marriage, it's going to start turning things around. It's going to start changing things. And sometimes when you're in that situation, you still have to speak the truth and love to people. Like, if you feel like, I try to show love, I try to show love, but I'm taken advantage of all the time. You have to speak the truth to that person in a loving way. I'm not saying that you don't confront things, but your heart's attitude is you're trying to minister to them. It's not about get, get, get. It's about real love, caring for other people. There's four ways to show mercy at home. Before I go there, some people say, I have a hard time with that. Well, do you do it with your children? Do you show love to your children, whether they deserve it or not? Or do you say to your children, I'm going to be loving to you if you do this and this and this and make me happy? Well, isn't your spouse also part of the family? Right? 
We, we can do it because we do it to our children. Our children can do crazy stuff, and we keep loving them and keep loving them. And we turn around to our spouse, and we have a different attitude. So with a spouse, you can keep loving them and loving them, even though you might have to speak the truth in a loving way against th something that, that you feel like needs to change. But you can keep loving them because we do it with our kids all the time. Four ways to show mercy at home. Number one, overlook irritations and offenses. Because you know what? You're going to get irritated. You can't live with people day in and day out and not be irritated by some of the things they do. It's going to happen. And you don't want your family buried by irritations and offenses. Because there's always going to be something here and something there. But in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, it says, love is not irritable or easily angered. So because you love them, it should take a lot to make you angry. I'm not saying that you'll never get angry, but the idea is it should take a lot. In other words, you get in the habit of, that's a small thing. I'm just going to let it slide. There's a lot of small stuff that if we just let it slide, you know, if it's a continual thing, you can address it. But there's a lot of things that we get upset about that really in the long run just don't matter. It's just, just let that go. See, anger is the most misunderstood human behavior. Probably the most mismanaged human behavior. Anger is not a sin. It's not a sin. God gets angry. Jesus got angry one time and chased people out of the temple because they were using it as a moneymaker instead of the purpose of what it's for. There's good kind of anger and there's a bad kind of anger. There's a righteous anger and an unrighteous anger. It can be a selfish anger or an unselfish anger. It depends on what it's being used for. For example, Racial prejudice should make you angry. You're inhumane if you don't get angry when you see things like that. Racial profiling, bigotry, those things should make you angry. If, if you have any sense of humanity, you get angry about stuff like that. So anger can be very righteous. If I hear about a woman being raped or a child being abused, I get angry. When I hear about Christians being beheaded, and these other countries, just because of what they believe, it makes me angry. If you don't get angry, there's something wrong with you. There are things that should make you angry. So anger cannot be bad in and of itself. It's what you do with the anger that makes it good or bad. What am I going to do? Do I have this managed? Am I using my anger wisely? You can use that anger to motivate you to do something positive, or you can be angry over selfish, silly things and causing problems in a family that really it's not that important. There are some important things that you should be very angry about. But a lot of the things that we get angry about, it's just not worth it. This is small stuff. Why would we divide a family over the way that she looked at me or the, the tone of your voice? You can hear the tone, but you don't know where they're coming from. I know this about the tone of my voice. It changes when I'm sick. <laughs> I might sound angrier. I don't know. But, you know, you can't judge somebody's heart by that. Some of the things, you just let it go. Just let it go. It's not worth it. But there are some things that you should be angry about. And defining the things that are worth fighting for and things that are, you know, I'm just going to let it go. Maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe they're just having a bad day. And maybe talk to them about it the next day when they've calmed down. But it's about loving. It's really about being more concerned about them 
than about me. But that's hard to do because mostly we're concerned about me and not them. A lot of times when someone thinks that they're handling their anger right, it means they're not really letting it go. They're stuffing it. The difference between letting it go and stuffing it is when you let it go, it's like, okay, I'm just going to, who cares? I'm going to let it go. And you really forget about it. Stuffing it means I'm not going to say anything, but inside I'm boiling. It's a difference. That's not letting it go. So don't think that if you're holding it inside and not saying anything that you're being spiritual and righteous. No, there's nothing spiritual about that. There's nothing righteous about that. You're harboring bitterness because the longer you hold something inside, it turns into bitterness or resentment, and that's always wrong. Letting it go is saying, this is just a small thing. It's not, I'm, just, I'm just not going to give it any more attention. It's not worth worrying about. And then you focus on the big things, the things that need to be talked about. The other thing that, that people do, instead of cramming up, is exploding. And that's not good either. You want to be able to talk to people about things, but it's learning the art of speaking the truth in love. The way I usually teach this is in a sandwich you have meat, and you sandwich the meat with bread. And I say the meat's the truth, the bread, that's love. So I have to tell you the truth about something, and you sandwich it with love. So how could you do that? I could say to Tanya, honey, I love you, but there's something going on that's really hurting me that we need to talk about. But the reason why I'm talking to you about this isn't because I'm against you. It's because I love you, and I want us to be in unity. So I start by making it clear that I'm coming from a place of love. Then I say, when you were talking on the phone with so-and-so, I felt like you were putting me down by what you were saying. And I felt like publicly embarrassed. Like, and I felt really hurt by that. Like I felt like attacked. Then I go back to love. But, you know, I love you and you're important to me. And, I, and you're the most important person to me. That's why I want to talk about this. Okay. Speak the truth in love like that. She'll talk to me. She won't get it defensive. We'll work it out. Because she feels like I'm attacking the problem. Old Jimmy, I'm waiting until she gets off the phone. And I'm saying, what are you doing? Why are you, you know, and, and, and I'm just like letting her have it because I cannot believe that she could offend me like that. What type of person would do such a thing? You know, that's the old Jimmy. What do you think happened? Do you think the old Jimmy was creating a good marriage? I guarantee you, no, it wasn't. Do you think the new Jimmy is creating a good marriage? Yeah. It's, it's totally different. And you know what happens? In the old Jimmy, we fought each other, and the problem never changed. Because if you feel like somebody, someone punches at you, you're going to defend yourself. So the problem never changed. With the new Jimmy, we're fighting the problem together because she feels loved. It makes a big difference. It makes a big difference. So learning how to sandwich the truth with love, and it changes the outcome. My real goal was to address the problem. But in anger, sometimes you attack the person, and then your goal of getting a better marriage or getting the right thing to happen doesn't happen. In fact, you have a big wall up, and you're even angrier at each other than you were before you talked. Things got even worse rather than better. And uh, it, it just changes everything. So you don't want to clam up. You don't want to blow up. But you do want to speak the truth in a loving way so that they can receive it and you can work on the issues that you want to work on.
in Proverbs 17:9 it says, Love forgets mistakes. Nagging about them separates even close friends. So this is what I'm saying. There are just certain things that people do that just let it go. It's just not worth fighting over. Proverbs 19, 11, it is to your glory to overlook an offense. That means it's to your credit. When you overlook an offense, it's going to make your life better. But remember, I'm saying you're not holding it in. Your goal isn't to harbor the bitterness, you're really letting it go because it's not that important. It's not something worth fighting over. And most things aren't worth fighting over. If you're always getting your feelings hurt, one of the things you have to consider is maybe emotionally I'm being immature. Because no one should have so much control over my emotions that they can constantly hurt my feelings. We give people too much control over our life and our emotions. And maturity is this. It's very difficult for another person to emotionally change the way I feel because your relationship about you feel has more to do with your relationship with God than that person. If you feel like you're walking with God and following him and somebody else is displeased with you, that's really their problem. If I feel like I'm not walking with God, now that's my problem at that point. But if you're walking with God, nobody else can sway your emotions so easily. Big things, sure. But some people, your emotions are easily hurt on a constant basis, and that's not healthy. You're giving someone too much power over you. It's really too much about me and my attention on me and less about me caring for and thinking about other people. In 1 Thessalonians 5.15, it says, Be careful that when you get on each other's nerves, you don't snap at each other. Look for the best in each other and always do your best to bring it out because you're going to get on one another's nerves. Your kids will get on your nerves. You're going to get on your kids' nerves. It's going to happen. That's why it says be careful when. It didn't say if because you're going to get on one another's nerves. But you're doing the best to bring out the best. You're learning how to overlook offenses. Number two, be kind when they don't deserve it. Because some people and sometimes and some moods, sometimes people are difficult. They're hard to work with. They're irresponsible. They're immature. They're demanding. They're pushy. They're self-centered. You know, they want everything their own way. They're aggressive, rude, destructive. Some people are like this on a regular basis. They're abusive. They're manipulative. They break promises. They're disloyal. Sometimes that's the attitude of a person in a moment. Sometimes that's the attitude of a person almost all the time you're around them. In 1 Corinthians, it says love is patient. Love is kind. Love is always supportive. Are you supportive even when they don't deserve it? And that's what true love is. Because true love means this. I don't love you based on how you treat me. I love you based on who I am. It's a character quality within me. So no matter how you treat me, it doesn't change my character of being a loving person. If you only love people that treat you well, that doesn't mean that you're a loving person because a loving person is going to be that way even when someone treats them wrong. Here again, I'm not saying you don't confront things and address things, but it's about your character. Am I a loving person? 
is love what flows from me, no matter who I'm talking to. It's just who I am. Because with God, it's just who he is. With Jesus, he's just loving. It's just who he is. It's a part of his character. We want it to be a part of our character. It has nothing to do with what they're doing. It has everything to do with who I am. That's why those people at that church in Charleston, South Carolina, when the guy went in and started shooting them all, that's why they could publicly say, we forgive this guy. They weren't saying that the guy doesn't deserve to go to jail to be prosecuted, but they were able to forgive him because they were loving in their hearts. Even though what he did was very evil and what he did deserves a death penalty. I mean, it was a very evil act, but it didn't change who they were. They didn't become resentful, bitter, angry. It, it didn't affect them that way. They were hurt, but they were forgiving. And yet, justice still needs to happen. Forgiveness doesn't mean you stop justice, but forgiveness tells what kind of person you are and shows that they really were loving in a situation where it would be hard to be loving. In Proverbs 19.11, it says, a man's wisdom gives him patience. I think that wisdom comes from understanding people and where they're coming from. See, a lot of times that person at the office that's just, why do they act that way? If you understood, you know, like maybe it'd be like this. If I had to grow up with his parents, I'd be messed up too. You know, sometimes we just don't know what they're going through. And we just see how far they need to come, and we don't know how far they've come. Maybe if you knew their life, and you'd be, like, shocked that they've come as far as they did. We know this, that when someone's hurt, they tend to hurt others. So sometimes it's better to look through past what they're doing and find out, why are they so hurt? What's happened to them to make them so hurt that they want to hurt other people? What happened to them that's made them so angry at the world around them? We might be surprised, but wisdom is understanding, not justifying, but understanding. I'm not going to justify the action of what the person did and say, well, because of what he did, he's allowed to do this evil act. I'm not talking about justifying the action, but I am talking about understanding why and where they're coming from. Because if you learn to understand people, you're going to have a lot more compassion. You're going to have a lot more care for them. And you'll be a more loving, merciful person just because you understand where they're coming from. You understand their hurts in the past. Proverbs 3.27, whenever you are able, do good to people who need help. Circle the word need because it didn't say do good to people who deserve help because some of them don't deserve it, not from you. You say, they don't deserve my help. They haven't been kind to me. I'm not going to be kind to them. But it says, people that need help, which means sometimes there's an enemy, someone that you say, treat you wrong. At work, maybe, maybe they've uh, done things that were unjust or unethical at work. And you find out that their son or daughter is in the hospital with cancer and it's causing all this stress in their life. And you send them a card and you, you reach out to them and you give them the help that they need, not that they deserve. You might say, that person's been bad to me. I'm glad they're suffering. That's how some people are. That means that's not a loving heart, right? They've been bad to me, so I'm glad they're suffering. No. 
a loving heart would say, even though they've treated me wrong, they're in need right now, so I'm going to reach out and meet that need. That's what draws people to God. You don't draw people to God by kicking them when they're down. You draw them to God by finding those moments that they're teachable and being there for them. And that's what turns lives around. That's how most people turn to God. It's through somebody's love at the right moment in their life that opened them up to God. Most people that have turned away from God, they're atheists, are people that are hurt by what's happened to them in their life. So they've turned away because a loving God cannot allow this to happen, so they hate God, and I don't believe in God anymore. But most people that are turned to God, it's the complete opposite. People of God showed them love at the right time, and that's what opened their hearts up to God. Proverbs 19, 22, kindness makes a man attractive. If you're ever looking in the mirror and you're saying, I don't know if I look that attractive, then be kind to people. Because <laughs> kindness makes people attractive. And it's true. You've all experienced this. Have you ever met a guy or a woman who, when you first meet them, you know, you think, wow, this person's beautiful. But after you got to know them, they don't look so good anymore. And it's not that their appearance has changed. It's just the attitude. You got to know the attitude of their heart that they just don't look good anymore. But you've also met people that when you first meet them, they're just kind of plain. You know, there's, they, they didn't turn your head to see them or anything. It's just that the average Joe, average Jane, you know, just that person out there that you wouldn't have given much thought to. But when you get to know them and they're so kind and this, all of a sudden they start looking really good. Have you noticed that? Your attitude has a lot to do with what is real attraction. And that person that you wouldn't have noticed, otherwise their kindness and their attitude makes them look attractive to you. So maybe I should do a series on how to catch the right man or how to catch the right woman. One of them would be be kind. In 1 Thessalonians 5.15, it says, Don't be hateful to people just because they're hateful to you. Rather, be good to each other and to everyone else. And that's the idea is they don't deserve it, but it's a character of who you are. They don't deserve my kindness, but I'm a kind person. They don't deserve my love, but... I'm a loving person. It's who I am. They don't deserve my mercy, but I'm a merciful person. And I don't deserve God's kindness, but he's kind, thank God. I don't deserve God's love, but he's loving. Praise God for that. Then number three, let go of your past hurts. In 1 Corinthians 13, 5, it says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Do you keep a mental record of everything your husband did wrong or your brother did wrong or your sister or your wife or your kids or that aunt or that uncle, and you keep a record of wrongs. So when you get in an argument with that person, you start saying, yeah, but you did this and this and this, and you save it up, and you keep bringing back the past to use as ammunition against them in your fights. Well, that's keeping a record of wrongs. It says love doesn't do that. Love just forgets about it. It lets it go. There are some abuses that people do that you're never going to trust them again. And you'd be foolish to trust them again. Okay? But most of the things that we argue with within the family, it's not something like that. Most of the strife that we have between a brother or sister, between a mom and daughter and mom and son or dad and son and all that, it's not those type of things that you can never trust them again. It's a lot of the little things that, that go on and on, and we allow it to divide us. 
And the Bible says love keeps no record of wrongs. I choose not to remember those things. It's not that you don't remember them. You're just choosing not to. I'm not going to bring up, boy, you never took me to the ball game when I was eight years old. And, then, and start from there and just think of all the things, you know, and I'm just going to rip them up and make them feel like a loser so I win the argument, I win the fight. Because those are things that we need to get past. We need to learn how to forgive and move on. I have no bright future if I don't deal with my past. And if I'm hanging on to the past... That's a horrible direction to be going in. If you're in a race and you start running the wrong way, you're going to lose. The race is that direction. So you have to let it go and focus on the goal ahead or else you have no life. When your spouse hurts you, don't rehearse it in your mind over and over. Don't get resentful. Don't keep bringing up the past. And don't go around telling everybody else, you know, how bad your husband is or how bad your wife is. That's not good. Here's what happens. If I go around telling everybody how bad my wife is, then what's going to happen is in about a two weeks or a month or everything, me and my wife have already worked it out. We're happy now. But all my friends still think bad about her. That's exactly what happens. It's not healthy for my marriage if I love my wife and all my friends don't. That's going to work against your marriage, not for So that's between you and your spouse. You can share it with a counselor, someone there to help you, but don't share it with everybody else. They don't need to know that. 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Love is not rude. Love does not demand its own way. It is not irritable or touchy. It does not hold grudges. Circle the word grudges. Love doesn't hold grudges. You let it go so you get your life back, so you can focus on the future. Then number four, believe God is working in the lives of others. Part of mercy is faith. They go hand in hand. You have mercy, but you also have faith. What's the faith? I don't see it, but I'm praying for my wife, and I'm believing that God's working in her life. I don't see it, but I'm praying for my son, and I believe that God's working in his life. I don't see it, but I'm praying for my husband. I believe that God's working in his life. I certainly don't see it with my mom right now, but I'm praying that God's working in her life, and I'm believing that he is. With my uncle and the way he acts, I don't see it, but I'm just praying for him and believing that God's working in his life. That's where faith comes in. Sometimes, so many times, by the way, the people that I've encountered that are most outwardly aggressive against faith are the ones that are about to make that decision to go for it, to go for God. Because I think what it is, is that's why they're fighting it so hard, is the turmoil inside. I've met people that are full-on atheists, and they really don't believe that there's a God, and they're not aggressively against Christianity. or They just, like, oh, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't think that, I just can't. But they're not aggressive. But the ones that are aggressive, it's because inside they have this turmoil. And I found that they're the ones that are sometimes the easiest to draw to the Lord. You show them a little love. They try to get you upset, and you just keep loving on them. And they're very, it's funny how easy it is for them. To, if you understand where they're coming from, which means that's a sign that they're on the verge of turning to God. Once you know that, you're lo- loving to them and just throw kindness toward them. And you'll be surprised that those are the ones that end up turning to the Lord. Sometimes the hardest one to reach 
is the person's calm and nice and will talk to you really friendly about it because they're so set in their ways you can't, there's no struggle going on inside for them. They're not really at a decision point. They've already made up their mind and probably whatever you say is not going to work. But we think they're the easy one to talk to. Doesn't mean that they're the one close to making a decision to Christ. So I say this. I'm praying that God works in their life, but I certainly don't see it. Well, that doesn't mean a thing that you don't see it. It's a person that you think is the farthest away from God or sometimes the closest to making that decision to say, okay, I'm going for God. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, love always trust. Love is always hopeful. And love always perseveres through whatever comes. How do you know that you're trusting God? How do you know that you're really trusting God? It has a lot to do with prayer. Like, if I said, are you trusting God in your marriage? What would that look like? Well, it would look like this. Do you pray about your marriage? Because I can't verbalize, hey, I'm trusting God with my marriage and not pray about it. Because the evidence of trusting God is you talk to God about it. So if I'm trusting God with my marriage, that means I'm praying for my marriage. If I'm trusting God with that teenage boy of mine that's just going off the wrong track, it's going to show by me praying to God about it. But me not talking to God about it means that I'm not putting God even in the picture. He's not even part of the deal. So prayer is a sign to you of whether or not I'm really trusting God. If you say, yeah, I haven't been praying for her. I haven't been praying for my dad. So then you know, I guess I really haven't been trusting God with him and his attitude or whatever it is that you realize needs to be different. And then you, what do you do? You start praying. In Psalms 28, it says, Lord, hear my prayer for mercy when I call to you for help, when I lift my hands toward your most holy place. And what he's doing is he's throwing himself on the mercy of God. That's what you do. God, I care about this person. I'm throwing myself on your mercy, trusting that you're going to make a difference. You're somehow going to work with my aunt and the way she's so rude to us. I'm just throwing myself on your mercy that you're going to change her. And you rely on the power of God to make a difference. In Lamentations 3, 20 through 23, I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. This is Jeremiah speaking. He lost everything. Another country came in and was taking them over then he goes on to say, yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. So imagine this. When everybody else will lose hope, another country comes in and takes us over. You lose your house. You lose your car. You lose your rights. You're now going to be a servant, you know, and all this type of stuff's going on. And he said, even though I'm grieving over my loss, yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The unfailing love of the Lord never ends. He's saying, even though these people are really evil to us, God still loves us. By his mercies, we have been kept from complete destruction. Like, praise God, I'm still alive, is what he's saying. The enemy came and, praise God, I'm still alive. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each day. So notice how he saw the positive and something that it's hard to see positive. They take us over, I lose my house, I lose my car, I'm now a servant. How do you see the positive side? with a negative side like that. And he saw the positive, like, I'm still alive. And with that, there's still hope. As long as you're still alive, there's still hope for change. It's when you're dead, it's over. 
in, in the midst of something where it's so hard to see the positive, he saw the positive because he knew God. He knew God's mercy. He knew that God was greater than the problems. So my problems are things like this. How am I going to have enough money to pay the car payment? His problem was, I lost my car, I lost my house, I'm basically a slave now. I look at his problem, I look at my problem, I said, come on, I don't have any problems. If he can trust God, even in that situation, knowing God's still going to work things out, I just know God, he's going to work things out. If he can do that, but he was still grieving, then who am I to be so upset about, I hope I can make my car payment? My problems are nothing compared to his if he can have hope, come on, I can have hope. I can say, okay, God, you're bigger than this. I'm not going to let it ruin my day. I'm just going to do everything I can in my ability to make that payment. I'm just going to trust that you work it out. And that's what you do. Because our hope is in God. Do you know God does these same four things to us? God overlooks our mistakes. He's kind to me when I don't deserve it. He chooses to forgive my sins, things I've done wrong. He's working in my life even when other people can't see it. God's still working. He does the same thing for us. And he's just saying, look at the way I love you. Saying, that's how I want you to just treat your wife. Look at how I love you. That's how I want you to treat your husband. Look at the way I love you. That's how I want you to treat that brother or sister or your parents or the kids or whoever it is in the family. The number one place as a follower of Christ, the number one place that people should see God's mercy in my life is at home. Is at home. And not just because I'm a pastor, but in all of our life. But, but let's just take a pastor, for example. Let's say that I showed you mercy and I showed you grace and I showed you kindness and I showed you love. But you got to know my kids, Alex and Andrew, my teens. And you talk to them, what's your dad like? And he's very unmerciful, very unloving at home. But you, you see what I'm saying? He's not kind. Now, what would you think about my faith and everything I've talked about on Sunday mornings? You think it's just a bunch of hogwash. He speaks it, but he doesn't live it. And it would ruin my whole reputation because there's a character issue there when you're speaking one thing and you're not trying to do it yourself. So it's the same thing for all of us. It's at the home where it comes first. If I can't be merciful in my home and loving at my home and kind at my home, that's where it starts. That's the real Jimmy. The people that know me, the, that really, really know me are Tanya, my boys, my parents. I haven't lived with my parents for years, but at least they knew me growing up. I don't think my character has changed a whole lot since then. But the people that you live with, they're the ones that really know you. They're the ones that need to see your mercy the most, not the least. Because in the same way it would look horrible for a pastor to be loving and not at home, it's just as horrible if you do the same thing to your family. It starts at the home, and then it extends from there to the community and people around you. And then that's, that's healthy Christianity. The number one thing that I hear people say negative about the church isn't they're after your money. Because you hear that, too, because of what, you know, t TV church, it does seem like they're after your money if you've watched it. But that's not the number one thing that they say. The number one thing that people say negative about church is there are a lot of hypocrites. And that would be the example of 
being negative at home, but positive out here. Because that's what would bring that out. And it's the number one thing that people say negative about churches. They're filled with a bunch of hypocrites. You know, my joke is always like, well, you can still come to my church. We can always have another hypocrite. Because the truth of the matter is everybody struggles in life. Everybody's a sinner. But also as a person, you don't want to be the hypocrite. You really don't want to have like being one way in public and something else with your family. You want to make sure that you treat your family number one and that it extends from your family to everybody else. And it will affect the way your spouse and your kids are as well because they will learn that in the home They'll learn love, mercy, grace, and they'll be that way to people around them as well. With this, I wanted to lead us in a prayer and a commitment uh, to these things so that we can have the best families possible. Let's pray. Dear God, we need your mercy. Lord, we want to be merciful to others, and it comes from your mercy toward us. Lord, we're asking that you help us to overlook offenses that take place in our family, that we can be kind to people in our family even when they don't deserve it, that we choose to forget those past mistakes, Lord, and just look beyond it. And Lord, that we'll address things that need to be addressed. If it needs to be confronted, we're going to care for it. We'll speak the truth in love. But Lord, we want to be people of mercy, especially in our home. And Lord, we want to trust that you're working in their life even when we don't see it. Because a lot of times we can't see your work taking place. So by faith, we're just trusting that it is, and we're going to pray for them. Lord, we lift up our families to you because we want the best families possible. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.